Go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel 16. And then stick your finger right there and also turn over to Psalm 55. So 2 Samuel chapter 15 and Psalm 55. Before we go ahead and open the text of Scripture this morning, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's help as we look at the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study your Word this morning. I pray that you would help me to rightfully divide the Word of truth. I pray that we would listen with open hearts and open minds and be ready to receive. And I pray that you would do a work both in us and through us. And as you show things to us in our own personal lives that need to be changed, I pray that you would give us the courage and the grace to confront them so that when we walk out the doors today, we will be more conformed and changed to the image of Christ than we were when we walked in. We'll give you the honor and the glory for everything that's done. We ask these things in your name. Amen. On July 11th, 1804, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr stood on the dueling grounds near Weehawken, New Jersey to resolve a long-standing conflict between the two men. Hamilton, as stated by a witness, decided that the duel was morally wrong and fired his pistol into the air. Burr then took aim, shot Hamilton in the stomach and the bullet lodged next to his spine. Hamilton was taken back to New York where he died the next afternoon. So the question is, is who is Aaron Burr? And what happened to drive him to shoot such an esteemed member of the American government as Alexander Hamilton? Well, Aaron Burr was born into a prestigious New Jersey family, and he graduated from the College of New Jersey, which would later become Princeton, at age 17. He's a pretty smart, pretty smart guy. He was a masterful politician elected to the New York State Assembly in 1784 and later served as the state attorney. In 1790, he defeated Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law in a race for the U.S. Senate. Hamilton, as a result of that race, he came to detest Burr and once stated, I feel it is a religious duty to oppose his career. In 1800, Burr joined Thomas Jefferson as his running mate and split the vote for the presidency. And in those days, it's a little bit different than today. President and vice president don't run together. Everybody ran individually. And the guy that won the most votes became the president. And the guy with the second most votes became the vice president. So there was a deadlock between, Hamilton, or between Burr and Thomas Jefferson. Alexander Hamilton stepped in and broke the deadlock and swung the vote in Thomas Jefferson's favor. And Burr was relegated to the vice presidency. Burr was not reinstated to the vice presidency. And so he then decided to run for governor of New York, where he was again opposed by a party led by Hamilton, who savagely attacked his character throughout the race. After Burr lost that election, he challenged Hamilton to their now famous duel. And after Burr killed Hamilton, he was charged with murder and thoroughly discredited. Feeling his power slipping away, he concocted a plot to seize the Louisiana Territory and established himself as the leader of a separate country. And so in the fall of 1806, Burr led a small army toward New Orleans, which prompted a federal investigation. He was then accused of treason and sent to trial, where he was later acquitted on a technicality. Nevertheless, in public opinion, he was viewed as a traitor, and he fled to Europe for self-preservation. He later returned to private life in New York, financially ruined, divorced, and bitter, where he passed away in 1836. So when we look at Aaron Burr, he was a man who had it all. He had an education, public support, a distinguished military career, and a bright political future. But he became a man consumed by anger and bitterness. He never got over the attacks against his character by Alexander Hamilton. He was infuriated after he lost the governorship of New York, which then led him to commit murder. And as a result of murder, he lost his political future. And the anger that stemmed from losing his post led him to commit treason against his country. And the final result was a broken, bitter, and lonely man. This morning, we're going to look at Ahithophel. 
in Scripture. He is a portrait of a man who is consumed by bitterness. But before we jump into the text this morning, I think we need to define bitterness, right? We're going to talk about it a lot. And so to make sure that we're on the same page, we need to define what it is. So very simply, bitterness is an elongated reaction to wrong, either real or alleged, when anger is not resolved. So it's an elongated reaction to, to wrong. It is not an explosive reaction. Bitterness is something that sits and simmers and festers deep inside of our souls. And it normally happens when we feel wronged, either legitimately so, or whether we think that we're wronged, even if we're not. Right? But the anger at that, it simmers in our hearts. Many times this response can be grossly out of proportion to the reality of our circumstances. I mean, consider Aaron Burr, right? So he felt wronged by Hamilton and his country, and his response was to go and try to steal a country for himself. Grossly out of proportion, right, with the reality of his circumstances. Once bitterness takes a hold in our heart, it can become all-consuming. Reminded of the words of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, which states, Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And the danger of bitterness is something that we all need to confront. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 16 and see how this is evidenced in Ahithophel's life and see what we can learn from his example. So, I think we first need to look at Ahithophel as a man, right? Who, who was he? Who was Ahithophel in Scripture? Well, Ahithophel is David's close friend and counselor. It says very clearly in 1 Chronicles chapter 27 and verse 33, and Ahithophel was the king's counselor. So Ahithophel is David's chief confidant. When David needs advice, he goes to Ahithophel to get it. And so Ahithophel is a man of prestige, he is a man of power, he is advisor and counselor to the most powerful man in Palestine. And in order to do that, you need to be a man of wisdom as well, right? So if you're in 2 Samuel, look at chapter 16, look at verse 23. Flip over there in my Bible as well, I got stuck in, I got stuck in, uh, I got stuck in Psalms, sorry, give me one second. 2 Samuel chapter 16. And look with me down in verse 23. Hithophel is a man of wisdom. It says, In the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. So he's an exceptionally wise man. Right? His responsibility is to provide advice for the most powerful men in the nation. He's a man of prestige. He spoke as one who knew both the law of God and the will of God. When he opened his mouth and talked, it was as if God was speaking through Ahithophel. He's a chief counselor. He is a man of wisdom, but also he's David's close friend. If you look at Psalm chapter 41, it speaks of a, David writes that psalm and he speaks of a close friend. Most scholars attribute that man to be Ahithophel. And it says in Psalm 41 and verse 9, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread. So David and Ahithophel are not just co-workers, they're confidants. They're friends. And finally, we see, I think Ahithophel is a man of worship. And so if you can flip over to Psalm 55 and look at verse 14. Psalm 55 and verse 14. Let me give you a little background to Psalm 55. This psalm is written as David flees Absalom. So Absalom has started his coup against David, and David is fleeing from Jerusalem, and as he runs, he writes Psalm 55. And so, again, you have David speaking about his son, and you have David speaking about another close friend, and most commentators and scholars assume that that close friend is Ahithophel. And look at what David says about Ahithophel in Psalm chapter 55 and verse 14. We took sweet counsel together and walked under the house of God in company. So Ahithophel and David were close. They had worked together. They had counseled together. They had worshiped in the house of God together. They stood shoulder to shoulder and they sang psalms and worshiped the Lord together in unity. 
But look at the change in Ahithophel. Right? Stay there in Psalm 55. Look at verses 12 and 13. David says, For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my guide, and my acquaintance. So Ahithophel rises up against David. So the question we have to ask is, what changed Ahithophel from a friend to a foe? From a mentor, right? From a mentor to a monster. From a companion to a combatant. Something changed in Ahithophel's life. And, and look, look at what he does against David. So we see first that Ahithophel is, is David's close friend and confidant, but Ahithophel flips and he becomes David's enemy who seeks after his death. Look, uh, flip back one chapter. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 15. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 15. So Absalom, the son of David, he initiates a coup against his father. So Absalom rises up. Look at what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, that Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And they said, Thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. And Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom goes behind his father's back, and he steals the affection of the nation, and he initiates a coup. Now something really interesting happens. Look down in verse 12. So Absalom has started his coup. And who does he send for? In verse 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, even from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. And so Absalom needs help against David. And he calls for and he seeks out Ahithophel. And Ahithophel jumps up and he runs to join the conspiracy against David. And not only does he join the conspiracy, but Absalom actively seeks out his counsel. And Ahithophel counsels Absalom in two ways. All right, look first. Ahithophel wants to humiliate David. He wants to make him look bad. All right, look at chapter 16 and beginning in verse 20. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, give counsel among you what we shall do. Right, so David has fled from Jerusalem at this point. Absalom has chased him out. And now Absalom needs to seek to consolidate what he has. And so he calls Ahithophel and says, tell me what to do. I don't know. And in verse 21, And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, which he had left to keep the house, and all Israel shall hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then shall all the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the houses, and Absalom went in unto the sight of his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is humiliating for David. Ahithophel encourages Absalom to humiliate his father. Now, this is consistent with the punishment that was prophesied by Nathan after David's sin with Bathsheba. Right? Do you remember the story? David sins. Nathan comes to him, and Nathan tells the story. Right? There's the shepherd that has one lamb that he loves dearly. And then there's the shepherd that has all kinds of flocks. And there's a guest that comes, and the shepherd with all the flocks comes, and he takes that one little lamb that that shepherd loves so much. And he kills it, and he feeds it to his guest. And this makes David angry. And he says, who is this man? He deserves to be put to death. And Nathan points the finger at David and he says, you are the man. You're the one. And David is smitten in his heart. And then Nathan goes on to prophesy judgment. And you know what, David, or you know what Nathan says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 
verses 11 and 12, he says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. Only David didn't realize that his neighbor was his own son. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. This action served to strengthen Absalom because it showed that he was the one that, it was, that was in charge. Absalom is unashamedly making a claim for the throne of Israel because he is taking to himself rights and privileges that were reserved for the king and for the king alone. So Absalom here crosses the Rubicon with Ahithophel's counsel. There was no turning back at this point. But not only does Ahithophel want to humiliate David, Ahithophel wants to destroy David. He wants to put David to death. Look at chapter 17 and verses 1 through 4. Moreover, moreover, Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Let me now choose out 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed, and will make him afraid. And all the people that are with him shall flee, and I will smite the king only. And I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all returned, so all the people shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well in all the elders of Israel. So after David flees from Jerusalem, Ahithophel is aware that he is in a position of weakness and vulnerability. And he immediately counsels a swift pursuit to destroy David once and for all and to put David to the sword. But notice, Ahithophel isn't saying, hey, let somebody else go and do this. Did you notice all the personal pronouns in verses 1 through 4? All right, look at it again. Verse 1, let me now choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue after David. Verse 2, I will come upon him and make him afraid. I will smite the king. Verse 3, I will bring back all the people. Ahithophel is saying, hey, give me the necessary resources. I will go kill David and I will deliver the nation into your hand. What happened? Ahithophel is David's close friend and counselor. And there's a complete 180. And he wants to humiliate David. He wants to put him to death. He wants to utterly destroy David and everything that he stands for. Why did Ahithophel leave David in a line with Absalom? To answer this question, we have to take a moment. We have to examine Ahithophel's family. Ahithophel had a son named Eliam. 2 Samuel chapter 23, uh, there's a listing of David's mighty men. And in verse 34, it says, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. So clearly, Eliam is Ahithophel's son. Eliam fought for David. He was a mighty man of war. He stood shoulder to shoulder to David, with David in battle. And Eliam had a daughter. Flip back in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And starting in verse 1, And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from his roof and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of a lion? So if you're doing the math, Bathsheba is Ahithophel's granddaughter. And Bathsheba is a married woman. She's married to Uriah, another mighty man of David. Second, um, in uh, 2 Samuel 23 and verse 39, Uriah is listed in the order of mighty men. So you have to imagine, right? Ahithophel is a happy man. He's got it all. He's got a close friend who he advises. They worship together. His son is a mighty man. He stands shoulder to shoulder with David, and they battle together, and they fight together, and they bring glory to God together. And he has a beautiful granddaughter that's married to another one of David's mighty men. And when Ahithophel looked at his life, he was happy and he was content. And then David came, and he destroyed and disgraced Ahithophel's family. 
We know from the text in 2 Samuel chapter 11, in verses 2 through 4, David lusted after and seduced Ahithophel's granddaughter, his most prized possession, his beautiful, sweet girl. And David lusts after and seduces her. And not only does he do that, he humiliates her by impregnating her while Uriah is away fighting in David's war. And then, in an attempt to cover his sin, after Uriah shows himself to be a more righteous man than David, David calls Uriah, he sends Uriah back to his captain with instructions to put Uriah to death. David humiliates his granddaughter. He impregnates her, and then he kills her husband to cover up his sin. I think we can look at this and say that, humanly speaking, Ahithophel had every right to be angry. This is heinous sin. David had violated his granddaughter and murdered her husband, and his family is humiliated and destroyed by David's betrayal. And we can only imagine the deep hurt that Ahithophel experiences. His close companion, his friend, a man who he, had, who he had stood shoulder to shoulder with and sung psalms of worship to God, had torn apart everything that he held dear. This is betrayal of the most painful and of the most grotesque kind. Now we know that David eventually repents, right? Psalm chapter 51, David writes that in his brokenness over his sin with Bathsheba. In verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 51, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. So David comes and he is broken before God and David confesses his sins. And then in Psalm chapter 32, that's David's great psalm of rejoicing over God's forgiveness. And we know that God is faithful to forgive when we confess. And in Psalm 32 and verse 5, David said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. I'm thankful for the forgiveness of God. And even in David's wickedness, God forgave and God blessed. But Ahithophel never did. Ahithophel never forgave David for destroying and ruining his family. His anger, left unresolved, festered and turned into a smoldering pit of bitterness. He refused to forgive David's transgression and he held on to his pain and his anger. He is so hurt and angry that he physically could not stay in the same city as David. Did you notice that? Look at uh, chapter 15, 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 12. Okay, did you notice this? Um, look at what the text says uh, in verse 12. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. So after this all goes down, after David sins with Bathsheba, Ahithophel is so angry that he can't even physically bear to be in the same city as David. And he leaves Jerusalem and he goes home to his own home city of Gilo. And when Absalom rises to power and he initiates this coup against David, Absalom sends for Ahithophel and he jumps at the opportunity to finally get his revenge against David. Absalom's revolt is nearly a decade after David's sin with Bathsheba. Almost 10 years. And Ahithophel has let his bitterness simmer this entire time. And when Absalom calls, he is ready. And that root of bitterness that had taken hold deep inside of his soul explodes to the surface. And he runs to Absalom so that he can finally wreak his revenge on David. I think it's really interesting that bitterness will turn us into what we despise. Ahithophel looked at David and he saw a vicious monster. A man who had destroyed and ravaged his family. 
But because Ahithophel refused to forsake his bitterness, he turned into exactly what he despised. David humiliated Bathsheba by seducing and impregnating her. But then Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom is go and sleep with your father's wives and concubines in the sight of all Israel. Think about the number of lives that were destroyed through Ahithophel's counsel. And Ahithophel is so blinded by his bitterness. He is so blinded in his quest for revenge that he doesn't realize that he's turned into the very thing that he despises. He has become the monster that he hates. David murdered Uriah to cover his sin with Bathsheba. And Ahithophel plots with Absalom. He says, give me those 12,000 men and I will pursue David and I will put him down like the dog that he is. Ahithophel turned into the very monster that he despised. So now we see the end of Ahithophel's bitterness. Where does the unresolved root of bitterness lead? Where does it take Ahithophel? Well, look with me in chapter 2 Samuel. Look with me in chapter 17. David was still the Lord's anointed king. And even though the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba were long-reaching and generational, David was still God's king. And God works sovereignly on David's behalf to preserve him in this time of intense vulnerability. In 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 31, it's revealed to David that Ahithophel is among the conspirators that sought his life. It says this, And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David knew the threat that Ahithophel provided. David knew how dangerous his counsel was. And so when David learns that Ahithophel has joined Absalom, he falls on his face and said, God, please, Turn his counsel into foolishness. And when David fled Jerusalem, there was another man, Hushai. And he was a loyal servant of David, but he was old. (laughs) And so when David went to flee Jerusalem, Hushai didn't have the legs to go with David. He couldn't flee quickly. And so David counsels him and he says, hey, stay in Jerusalem and feign loyalty to Absalom and work as a spy in Absalom's court on my behalf. And Hushai was another one of David's counselors. And the Lord uses Hushai in a remarkable way to preserve David in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Look at it beginning in verse 5. So we've seen Ahithophel's counsel in verses 1 through 4. And in verse 5, Then said Absalom, Call now Hushai the archite also, and let us hear likewise what he saith. And when Hushai was come to Absalom, Absalom was spoken to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken after this manner. Shall we do after his saying? If not, speak thou. And notice in verse 7 that the Lord uses Hushai's counsel to frustrate Ahithophel. He undermines Ahithophel's credibility here. And in verse 7, Hushai says, The counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men, and they they be chafed in their minds as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war, will not lodge with the people. Behold, he is hid now in some pit or some other place, and it will come to pass, when some of them be overthrown at the first, that whosoever heareth it will say, There is a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. And he also that is valiant, whose heart is at the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man, and they that with him be valiant men. So Ahithophel has counseled David, or has counseled Absalom, and he says, Go now, quickly! Pursue David. Let me take 12,000 men. I will put him to the sword and deliver the nation into your hand. And Hushai says, whoa, pump the brakes. (laughs) He says, that's not good. He said, David, David is a mighty man. And he says, look, he and his mighty men are angry like a mama bear that's lost her cubs. Right? And he says, they're not going to lodge with the people. They're going to set up an ambush. He says, if you take these men out, they will ambush you and they will put you to the sword. And then everybody that's with you, they'll get scared because they said, David is a mighty man. He said, your rebellion will collapse before it starts. And then notice also what he says in uh, in verse 11. Uh, He comes up with a very audacious plan in verse 11. Therefore, I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee from Dan even to Beersheba. This is the length of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. 
as the sand is by the sea for the multitude, and that thou go into battle in thine own person. So Hushai buys David valuable time. He says, look, instead of taking who we've got and pursuing David, let's pump the brakes a little bit, right? He says, collect an army from all Israel, gather them all together, bring them to Jerusalem, and then ride out to fight David with you as their head, right? We'll conduct a manhunt all over Israel. Eventually we'll find, I mean, we know, right? I mean, David evaded Saul for a long time in the wilderness. <laughs> and so Hushai says, don't worry though, we'll find him, right? We'll, we'll, we'll make a manhunt for David. We'll find him in the wilderness and then we'll kill him. And so Hushai provides David through this council. He provides David with valuable time that he needs to collect himself to gather his men together and to recuperate from this attack. I think it's really interesting, though. Look at verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. But why? Right? Was Hushai's counsel actually better? No. Humanly speaking, it was terrible. All right, so why did this happen? Well, at the end of verse 14. For the Lord hath appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. We know in Psalm 115 and verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. In the book of Proverbs, it tells us that the heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wants. And God sovereignly works on David's behalf, and he turns Absalom's heart to take the counsel of Hushai over the counsel of Ahithophel. And God sovereignly works on David's behalf to preserve his life. But I think it's really interesting that humanly speaking, Ahithophel's counsel is a lot better. Did you notice that in verse 14? It says that the Lord worked to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. God is sovereign and God is in control. And God intervened, sovereignly and providentially intervened on David's behalf to spare his life by circumventing the counsel of Ahithophel and by elevating the counsel of Hushai. And so what is the result of Absalom taking Hushai's counsel over, Absalom, or over Ahithophel's? Look down in verse 23. 2 Samuel 17 and verse 23. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house to his city, and he put his household in order, and he hanged himself and died, and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. Ahithophel knew that he had burned his bridge with Absalom. As soon as Absalom took Hushai's advice over Ahithophel's, his position of influence in the royal court was gone. He had burned his bridge with Absalom. He had no more influence in the king's royal court. And then he knew that when David, right, so he knows that David is coming back. Because his counsel is not followed and they have not destroyed David, he knows that David is going to make a return. And when David comes back, he will find Ahithophel and he will execute him as a traitor. So rock, hard place, Ahithophel. <laughs> and so he sits and he weighs his options and he says, what do I do? And after careful thought, Israel's wisest man made the decision to end his own life. His bitterness ended up killing him. And I think it's interesting that Ahithophel literally means brother of foolishness. Which is characteristic of his behavior in refusing to resolve his bitterness. The wisest man in Israel acted the fool and it cost him his own life. I think we can all agree when we look at Ahithophel that this story is a sad and cautionary tale. We need to learn from Ahithophel. So the question then is, what about you and me? How does the story of Ahithophel translate into our lives? How does it impact and change the way that we live today? If there's one big thought that I want you to leave today with, it is this. Because of the destructive power of bitterness, believers must be vigilant to kill it in their own hearts. Because of the destructive power of bitterness, believers must be vigilant to kill it in their own hearts. Ahithophel failed to kill his sin and it cost him his physical life. But unsolved anger led to bitterness, which when left unchecked led to death. Believers today, the word that the scripture uses is mortify, to kill, to wage war on, to put to death. Believers must 
mortify bitterness in their own lives because when it is left unchecked, it kills our spiritual development and it harms the community of faith. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15, which we read earlier, states, looking diligently lest any man fail the grace of God. That is the killing of our spiritual development. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness can hide for years, decades even. But eventually it does come to the surface. And when it explodes into action, it will hurt you and defile those around you. We need to figure out how to put this sin to death. We need to figure out how to kill bitterness. So the question then is, how do we do that? How do we put bitterness to death? Now, I do understand that this morning, you, you may be angry. You may be hurting. And like Ahithophel, you may have a legitimate reason to feel the way that you do. You may feel like it's impossible to let go. I was wronged. And you take that and it has worked its way into your soul. And you say, I want justice. You want God to make it right. And you just feel like you cannot shake your anger. And so we can't just say, well, shake it off and get over it, right? This is not that easy. This is something that takes root in every nook and cranny of our soul, and it hides there. So how in the world can we root this out and kill it? I'll give you four suggestions. Number one, you and I need to admit that we cannot conquer bitterness on our own. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, and I think we have it up on the screen. It says this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you are angry this morning, Jesus knows right where you are at. So you do recognize, right, that if anybody had a right to be bitter, it was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he came to earth to seek and to save those who were lost. And yet he was put on display for a mock trial and he was murdered for crimes that he did not commit. He was the one individual in history that never sinned and never did anything wrong. And he was put to death for the crimes that you and I did. And if there was anybody in history that had a right to be bitter, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't sin. And in fact, on the cross, he achieved victory over bitterness. He crushed bitterness and he put it to death once and for all on the cross through the shedding of his blood. And what you and I need more than anything is not more willpower to put our bitterness to death because our, bitter, our, our willpower doesn't help us at all. We need the grace of God. We need the saving and the sanctifying work of the gospel both in us and through us to root out bitterness in our own lives. Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25 says, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So in order for us to put our bitterness to death, we must be in Christ. That means we acknowledge that we are a sinner. We accept the gift of his saving grace. It is nothing that we can do. It is not by our own willpower. It is not by good things that we are done, have done. It is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And when the grace of God impacts every area of our soul, only then can we begin to root out bitterness. We cannot do it on our own. We need the saving and the sanctifying grace of God to work deep into our hearts and deep into our souls, to work in us and through us 
And only then can we begin to put bitterness to death. So step number one, acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. Number two, you need to pray and ask God for help. Psalm 86, verses 1 through 5. It says, bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice. I think it's interesting he uses this word. Rejoice the soul of thy servant. Bitterness sucks the joy out of us, and it leaves us dry as we wallow in our own self-pity. And the psalmist here says, Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them what? That call upon thee. We need to pray and ask God for help. Listen, your willpower cannot conquer bitterness. We need to intercede and ask God to help us. When dealing with bitterness, you can look in one of two places. You can either look inward and you can wallow in self-pity and in anger. Or you can look upward and see your God. Great in glory and plenteous in mercy. Mercies are new every morning. Victory, both in the present and for eternity, comes from God. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 states, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in order to achieve victory over bitterness, to root it out of our souls, to put it to death, you need to look to God. Take your focus off of yourself and put your focus on your Savior. Behold your God. Step number three, we need to trust in the promises of God. Trust in the promises of God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 states, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Do you know that God's judgment is actually a gift of grace? The grace of God's judgment is a means of helping us overcome our sinful impulses to nurture bitterness and revenge in our own souls. Because when we think it's up to me to get justice, we cling to it and we hold on to it tightly. But God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And the promise of divine judgment allows us to open our hands and to lay bitterness at the foot of the cross and to let God be God and believe that he will do what he says he will do. All wrongs will be dealt with by the Lord. We can leave our pain and our anger and our hurt in his hands because he owns all vengeance. It's a promise. It's, a, it's not a suggestion. <laughs> it is a promise. It is a guarantee. And God says that he will repay. And all wrongdoing will be paid for at one of two places. Either in hell for all eternity or at the cross of Jesus Christ. And God has already poured out his judgment on Jesus. And he took the punishment for the crimes that we committed. And those that place their faith and trust in, Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has already paid for all wrongs because he has placed it on his only begotten son. And those who refuse Jesus Christ will pay for their punishment for all eternity in the lake of fire. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And if we believe that God will do what he says he will do, it allows us to unclench our fists and to put our own feeble cries for justice and to lay them at the feet of the Savior. God will settle all accounts. Our responsibility is to back off <laughs> and leave God room to accomplish his will and his work because the reality is, is that he can do it better anyway. So get out of the way and let God be God. Trust in the promises of God and let him do what he says he will do. And finally, we need to put on the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Familiar verses, I think, to most of us. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice, and be kind one to another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, you need to do steps one through three before you can get to step four. You can't skip straight to putting on grace without first acknowledging that you can't conquer bitterness on your own. Without asking God for help and without trusting and resting in the promises of God and preaching them deep into your own soul. Only when we do that can we then put on the grace that God provides. Right? The text very clearly, it says, put off bitterness. To me, that's steps one through three. But then he tells us, put on grace. And that's step number four. It's not good enough for us to put off our bitterness. We need to fill its place with something else. And that is the grace of God. It's mercy. It's loving kindness. Now, if you're like me this morning, you might go, "Mm, but that's hard. (laughs) That's hard. It's easier for me to hang on to my anger and say, they don't deserve my mercy. It's easier for me to clench my fist and say, I want justice and I'm going to do it my own way. But did you notice the motivation in verse 32 for our call to putting on the grace of God? Did you see it at the end of the verse? Look again at verse 32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. It's hard. But what's the motivation? Look at the last phrase. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Why should you show mercy to other people? Because Christ showed mercy to you and me when we did not deserve it. Christ was put to death on the cross for crimes that I committed. I sent Jesus Christ to his death. And yet God, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, God in his great mercy wherewith he loved us, he hath quickened us together with Christ. He has raised us to sit in the heavenly places. And by grace we are saved through faith. The grace and the mercy of God came to me when I did not deserve it. And my crimes put Jesus Christ to death. And yet God, in his mercy and in his grace, saved me. And because of that, I must now show mercy to others. Jesus Christ didn't get bitter, and he didn't hold my sin against me on my account. He was gracious and merciful and forgiving. And he showed me the greatest kindness when I did not deserve it. And that is the greatest motivation that we can have to putting on the grace of God and allowing the grace of God to work in us and through us so that we can show mercy to others. And it's always a challenge when we look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 when he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Bitterness will kill us. So brothers, we need to put on the grace of God. We need to put on the grace of God. We must seek out and destroy bitterness in our own hearts because of its destructive and devastating qualities. Believers must recognize their own inadequacy in dealing with bitterness. Ask God for help. Trust in the promises of God and put on the grace of God. When I was preparing In thinking through these truths, I was reminded of the hymn, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. If you don't know it, it's a great hymn. You can find it on YouTube. Um, But Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. And it says this, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near, your Savior's gracious promise here. His faithful word you can believe that as your days your strength shall be. Your faith is weak, your foes are strong. And if the conflict should be long, the Lord will make the tempter flee that as your days, your strength shall be. And then verses three and four really just kind of jumped off the page at me. It says, when called to bear your weighty cross, and if you have been wronged, if you have been sinned against this morning, that is a weighty cross. When called to bear your weighty cross, a sore affliction, pain, or loss, or deep distress or poverty, still as your days, your strength shall be. So sing with joy, Afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, 
your strength shall be. Ahithophel provides us with a solemn picture of bitterness unchecked. But we, friends, through Christ, we have a better way. I don't, I don't know your situation this morning, but I do know that victory over bitterness can be achieved by the power of God through the grace of God. So please, don't let bitterness fester in your heart. Root it out. Put it to death. And walk in the grace that God provides. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. This has been a challenge to me. And you have used this to work in my own heart and in my own life. And I pray that you would help us as we take a couple of moments to examine our own hearts and to examine our own minds. That if you reveal roots of bitterness that have popped up in our own life, that you would help us to admit that this is beyond us. Help us to run to you, not to look at our own selves, but rather that we would run to you and seek and savor you. I pray that you would help us to trust in the promises that you have given to us, that we would preach them deep into our souls, and that you would give us the peace of God that passes all understanding, and we rest by faith that you will do what you say that you will do. And help us then to put on grace, to help us, as you did, to show mercy to those who did not deserve it. Help us to be Christ-like models this week. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and the piano plays, let me just challenge you. Take a couple of moments. Examine your own heart. Examine your own mind. Ask the Lord to show you any roots of bitterness that may have cropped up in your own soul. Let me encourage you, if you need to do business with God, do it this morning. The front is available if you'd like to use it. If you'd rather sit in your chair and pray, either is fine.